Hi, everybody. This is Ann Price. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. You know, as I record this intro, it is February 27th, and we are almost at the end of Black History Month. So I've been doing a lot of reflection and a lot of studying, and I hope you have too. We are also at the end of the fourth day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I don't know about you, but I've had a few sleepless nights, definitely not sleeping as well as I used to. But let's get to today's episode. So today I am happy to be joined by my evaluation colleagues, Sharon Adipo-Dorco and Norma Martinez-Rubin, who are both extraordinary evaluators with a heart for service. They have developed the impact model, a culturally responsive and equitable evaluation model that they are going to share with you. As most of you know, I'm a community psychologist. I spend a lot of time out in communities. I hope this model resonates with you and gives you pause as you work in communities. I know it will for me, certainly. They're going to explain what each of the letters of impact stand for as it relates to their framework. But I want you to think about as you listen, who are who do we engage in our work, whether that be evaluation or community change? Who do we engage in the work? Who will ultimately benefit from the work? And who is not yet involved that needs to be present? These are the gifts that Sharon and Norma bring to us today. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope you will let us hear from you and um, yeah, let us know what you think for sure. So we're going to dive right in. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. Today, I have not one, but two guests, Sharon Adipo and Norma Martinez Rubin are with me today. And uh, we were just talking about uh, uh, interrupting and how we're going to manage this and um, all the things. So uh, tech is fun. Hopefully this will go well today. But I am so appreciative to have you guys on the podcast today. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Anne. I think yeah. what happens is we get super excited about each other's um, work and being. And um, so, yes, I hope we can listen. I will definitely practice that today. Yep. <laughs> and then, and then we then we have slips of the tongue. I was telling um, Sharon and uh, Norma about you know don't worry about being perfect. And on my last podcast, I said like pursued instead of persevered, and I said I just said Nora instead of Norma, and we're just gonna. We're going to, all right, enough of that. Let's, let's talk about why the heck we are here today and why I wanted to talk to the two of you. So I want to um, start by letting everybody know how we met. So I know I told uh, Norma this story, and I don't think you remembered when I said, I remember how we met. We met 
in my version of the story anyway, Norma, at a summer institute. It was your first summer institute ever, and you were brand new to evaluation. I don't, you may not remember that, but I remember that. And then Sharon, we met at an AEA meeting, and I don't even know which one. So you've taken me back about 15 years, Anne, um, at that summer institute. You know, I'll, I'll tell you what I remember about that, the ice cream breaks. We had breaks and we had ice cream. <laughs> oh, that, that must have been when the CDC was a co-sponsor, when it was the AEA CDC. Although, I don't know, we probably would have had to have something healthy, right, Sharon? <laughs> of course. <laughs> But I guess I've been starting the ice cream, it sounds like it, because I don't remember any ice cream. Yeah, they don't <laughs> they don't do that anymore more. Although the Summer Institute is still my all-time favorite training because it's just so practical. And I and you guys are all about practicality and working with communities in a very practical, accessible way. And so am I. So uh, enough babble. Let's get to it. Uh why don't you, and maybe we'll start with Sharon, introduce yourself. Tell us how you came to be who you are. Awesome. Thank you so, so much for having me and my buddy Norma here today. So very briefly about me, I am Dr. Sharon, and I am a principal of Tertia LLC, and it's a small organization, consulting practice, really, in the Georgia area where our mission is to help organizations with the tools that they need to really think about how they do their work, specifically around culturally responsive and equitable research, as well as evaluation. And I will talk a little bit about why evaluation, because I think we know for the most part that when you mention that word sometimes in communities, it's not, it, it doesn't go so well. Um, but really the reason why, and that's actually why I do that work, right? To, to um, really bring the, the framework of having to think about evaluation as something that we do in our everyday lives, right? When we question things, when we're wondering, why are we doing this? Why am I paying for that? Right. And when you go to the store versus something else, so that is in your own way, you use an evaluative thinking and being able to bring it this perspective to to everybody, really, in the work that I do is really impactful for not only myself, um, but my goal is to also bring that impact to the communities that I work with. And when I do that work, there's a lot of collaboration at that. Right. So and it's really through those engagement um, I like to call them engagement episodes of life where I get to meet folks like you, Anne and Norma. And uh, very briefly, in my early beginnings, I really started in the engineering field, <clears throat> specifically in biomedical and chemical engineering. I was one of those I wanted to do go to med school. So I did a pre-med minor and all that. But then I took the MCAT and that did not treat me well. So that was a sign for me that that is not the path I was supposed to take. So I just ended up going back to school, getting my master's at that time in biomedical sciences and biotech. So I stayed in that field for quite a bit, worked for a company doing um, manufacturing medical equipment, traveled around several states, southern states for the most part, training and inst installing those equipment across the several clinical settings. However, I became at that point, it was very glaring to me how much different in terms of operations, the different settings that I went to, how they really differed. So it got me really 
it piqued my interest. It got me really interested into asking questions to really think about health in general. So although I didn't end up going to med school, I ended up going back to school due to this exploration, got my uh, MPH and also my PhD as well in health policy. And I think to, to finally cap it off is that the pivotal moment for me that really confirmed and said that this is where you needed to be was when I was in my statistics class, when I was getting my MPH. Um, and I remember sitting there and hearing statistics about Black communities and how the health, health outcomes were and how bad they were. And the narrative around that time was more on the individual level. And I felt myself screaming inward. I couldn't speak it out because I was just like, I was really taken aback. It's like, wait a minute, that's not me. That's not my family. What is this? So I there and then I knew I was in the right place to really shake some trees and bring some new narratives as to what the reality of people who look like me um, and others who are or tend to be marginalized, what truly our lived experiences are. So thank you. And I'll pass it over to you, Norma. Thanks, Sharon. You know, every time we get together somehow, even if it's virtually, I learn a little bit about you and, and the kinds of things we have, we share. So you took me back many years ago when you said MCAT. <laughs> but before knowing what that me, what that uh, meant, um, how I started, you know, you asked us to talk a little bit about, you know, what influences what we do today, you know, who we are now. And I'll tell you, I, I over the course of my lifetime have had many instances where I experienced sort of a, an identity crisis because of having grown up a bilingual and bicultural in California. Um, I come from a um, Mexican family, so I'm a first-generation Mexican-American in California. I grew up um, and was reared in Los Angeles, went to school in Los Angeles, and uh, thought I would be there the rest of my life, and it turned out I ended up in Northern California. But before then, I'm the product of public schools. I'm the product of a family that had to access, uh, because of socioeconomic circumstances, publicly funded programs that primarily centered around um, health accessibility or the lack of, or in a time when um, a matter of um, cultural identity was still, you know, still something in question and, and regarded as as perhaps something not to really focus on too much because as a matter of, of survival and, and attending to day-to-day -day kinds of things uh, that were job related, my parents really did not think about um, that other than trying to keep their family happy. And so I grew up um, very, very contented and satisfied in, in how I was reared and didn't really know um, about what I came to understand were considered disparities until I ended up in a school of public health. And before then, my um, my orientation as well was, was probably largely based on family upbringing, family values, as well as my Catholic upbringing, which led me to attend Loyola Marymount uh, University in Los Angeles, Jesuit um, run, um, university and very much aligned with some of the uh, cultural traditions that I knew. However, at that time, I also experienced this big shift in um, not so much cultural uh, clash, but um, an economic one. And I'll give you a simple example. We used to have a monthly break um, between fall and spring semester. And whereas some students ended up going to recreation to recreate 
um, ski and what have you travel, I would go home down the street from the university and um, help out at home or, you know, just attend to kinds of things that that I thought, you know, my family needed help with. And, and that's fine and good, but it, it really made me realize what a difference in accessibility and at that point um, in manner of rec recreation. My biggest influence with regard to professional work was my mom, uh, has been my mom, who um, had at, in her years as an adult difficulty accessing healthcare services because of language differences, not being um, a, a fluent English speaker. So those kinds of experience stuck with me when I ended up in the School of Public Health at UCLA. Uh, I got to learn more about um, also language differences because any graduate program really is an entree into a field as it has been an evaluation, right? We have our own language. And, and so it's, it's really quite fascinating to me that in every episode, chunk of time, I used to, I used to measure that in terms of four years because that's the structure that we're given academically. You know, four years was you know, I spent, I was at XYZ school, another four years at another school in preparation for this or that. Um, and so to a certain point, I realized, you know, it, it's not four years only that, you know, in which one learns. And so I am an avid lifelong learner, continuing to learn. And so I um, became a, a health educator, public health educator when I left school public health. And I um, ended up being an administrator and as, as got further and further away from the reason that I chose that career. You know, the paperwork, the reports, the multiple meetings, um, incessant meetings. Um, and, and so I thought, I've got to do something different. I ended up going um, to a different graduate program to get a sense, again, of a different set of circumstances to which for the most part um, drives our, our life here in the States and that's an economy. So I ended up studying um, in an MBA program <laughs> to get a sense of, you know, what motivates, what motivates those who, you know, pursue that kind of track. And so I ended up with a blend of understanding of that and, and uh, the, the population-based kind of orientation. Fast forward, I had a moment to pause and do my student work and focused on what will I do next? And that's when I thought, I am going to take the best of what I enjoyed in public health, combine it with some of what I'd learned in uh, business administration and venture on my own. And that's how I ended up being an independent evaluation consultant, knowing that uh, data speaks. And then the question becomes whose data, what data, what questions are asked. And so uh, an opportunity to test that out, to practice it, to use it is what evaluation has offered me. And so here I am. And then um, I love to say that the bicultural, bilingual, multicultural, cross-cultural upbringing and professional work has led me to many more opportunities, many more people that have enriched my life. And so here we are, the three of us. Well, it's interesting listening to um, both of you because I hear so much that resonates uh, with with me, I, and it's it's even though we come from different fields and different uh, ways of life and different cultures, we all have a shared. I think the three of us ha definitely have a shared value system, a heart for community change and systems level change, as opposed to you know putting it all on the individual. Really thinking about that person, environment, uh, fit, 
didn't know you went to Loyola, Norma. We'll have to we'll have to have that conversation. Um, yeah, so that's just yeah, that's that's lovely. And I, so, how did the two of you get together? Because I also hear uh, the the multicultural that right. So you guys have that in common. So how did you guys meet? Yes, we definitely have that. Norma, do you want to tell the story? <laughs> Um, you are talking to an introvert, okay? <laughs> That's also what I am. Um, me, and I, me too, sister. I, oh, you know, I'm laughing because I think that um, in spite of that, you know, a preferred usual way of, of seeing the world, being about in the world, we also um, have the strength to, or, or the wherewithal to use that to be attentive to the groups with whom we work and uh, to create opportunities for people who have that sense of introversion or not being heard to come out and, and bring that out and, and be part of something bigger. Um, how we met was that I was probably in a corner in some big, vast room in a convention center of the American Evaluation Association's conference um, venue uh, one year. And um, there was some sort of networking event and I looked around and I saw a woman in a very colorful outfit that attracted me, very traditional garb and come to find out it was Ghanaian traditional wear. And we started talking about that. So we started talking, um, Sharon and I, about um, culture and we started talking about tradition and we started talking then uh, about that in this big room, noisy room with all kinds of people going on. And yes, food. Now, I don't remember specifically what they were serving, but I know there were snacks around. Um, and, and so we shared that and, and realized that we were um, about to go, I believe, the following day or maybe that same evening to uh, another business related meeting. But by then, you know, we had made this connection, mm -hmm. not over anything really academic or professional, but something about about what represented Sharon and my attraction to find out more about that um so that's what I remember yeah see why I wanted you to tell the story because it, when it comes from you I just love hearing and soaking it all in and it speaks to that culture piece right and there's something about having been raised in a multicultural environment and how that almost makes you a magnet with those type of things. And not only did we share that, we soon realized that we actually have more in common and that was we're part of the ACE network, which is the advanced and culturally, and culturally responsive and equitable evaluation network, which is a group of evaluators who do this, the, the work that fosters CREE, which is again, the, the the words or the letters that symbolize culturally responsive and equitable evaluation. Um, but needless to say, we've, we found out about that. And yes, we ended up that evening going to another networking event. And there was just something magical from that moment on that whatever we decided to do after that, it's, I call it magic because we get on a phone call and all these ideas just come out of nowhere and we just put them down together. And then we realize, oh my goodness, we can write this for that blog. We can write this for this. And before you know, we're creating really beautiful work together. So that's, that's the story. Yeah, I, I love that. And um, Norma, I never in a million years would have pegged you for an introvert. 
uh, because you were so bubbly and so friendly when I met you that first time. But people say that about me too. So um, yeah, I, I feel you. And I love that story. I don't, and I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think any of us uh, meet by accident. I think it's all purposeful. Um, so I'm glad that uh, you both were brought into my life. So let's dig in and talk about your work. Cause one of the things that, um, uh, we have talked about before is the need to make evaluation practical and simple and um, kind of reduce the overload on communities. I think the three of us definitely have that in common. I think we can um, talk evaluation without using all the that that specialized language with the, that we love. So you guys have that in common. So how to how to let's talk a little bit about that and how that impacts your work. And then I want to talk about this framework that you guys have going. So let's start with about practical, simple evaluation is a way to help communities. Absolutely. And more on that is also not make it practical, but also make the community a part of it. Yes. And that is so pivotal to how Norma and I see our work. So much so that I want to say it was really early during the, the times of the pandemic when we were all in our homes, right? We didn't have much else to, to in terms of going outside of our, our homes um, or where we, you know, enclosures that we call home, however folks define that. Um, and Norma and I just had a moment where I think there was a call out to an NDE. Oh, sorry, I apologize in, in, in <laughs> terms of using those acronyms again. See, still in this academic phase. Um, but needless to say, that's a new directions evaluation. It's a, it's a journal for evaluators people can submit work to. But needless to say, that uh, there was an opportunity to submit something to that. And so Norma and I got together because we're already in our networks now. Like I said, we've been chatting quite a bit um, for, for a while then. And when we got together, we both expressed frustration around some of the things that you've already mentioned, right, Anne, about how can we make this uh, very practical. And additionally, how do we make sure that whatever it is that we're creating to, to foster the work of culturally responsive and equitable evaluation, it's really something that evaluators like ourselves can use in, in, in collaboration collectively with the communities that they work with, honor the culture and the context within which they work, right? Um, and be able to do that meaningfully and not feel overburdened, overwhelmed by, okay, yes, here's another framework we have to learn and go all academic. We really wanted to avoid that. Um, so that was at the heart of the conversation. And at the, and I'll sum it up and have Norma at some point. At the heart of it too, we wanted to also use something that we were familiar with in terms of how we do our work as evaluators because then people are more drawn to it. So we were tossing around ideas and we both said, hmm, what is that word that we like to throw on so much, but sometimes we ourselves don't really know what we're talking about. And that word was impact. And that, uh. that, that just resonated with us so strongly. We just went, we just flew with it and we figured out how to work with it. So we'll talk about the framework some more. Norma, anything else you'd like to add to that story? I'm thinking about, <clears throat> um, I'm thinking about, impact as well as um, impatience. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I'll tell you what that means that, um, if, you know, Sharon and I did our, our, our formal work, um, academic work at different times in, in 
this country, right? Um, and nonetheless, uh, we have both experienced um, as observers, um, as observer participants, if you will, in our societies. Um, what I was introduced to um, in, in my in my uh, graduate program, um, disparities, and that was oh boy, decades ago. And the notion of, of studying something that um, existed then and, and, and thinking about how we're still talking about those disparities is darn frustrating. And I conversation and the attempt at doing something about them um, is going to continue. And uh, it's fortunate and unfortunate that that's the situation, but that is that is what it is. <clears throat> and so trying to think about how do we <clears throat> involve ourselves in one or several systems to do something about that um, means, again, that we have to look at the language that we use and to try to have an opportunity for people to come together and talk about what they experience when they hear current trend of being culturally responsive and equitable, um, knowing that in our own lifetimes, we have both experienced not only the language about it, but the consequences of that and been observers uh, of those consequences in communities was some of what drove us to say, okay, you know, we all, to some degree, whether part of X or Y or Z community, can be or have been observers or participants of these disparities, differences, et cetera, and the conditions that are less than ideal for communities to, th to thrive in. And that frustration and that impatience, and I'll say that of me, <laughs> that impatience of not seeing vast systemic changes uh, combined with the renewed enthusiasm and interest in that, that I noticed um, in working with, with up and coming scholars and colleagues like Sharon, got me excited to, to put something together that, that hopefully is helpful to uh, those who will take a look at what some of you might regard as an acronym, you know, and we'll talk a little bit more about this framework that we're calling impact. Uh, but you'll, I think people will recognize some things that they know. And so what we're doing is we're building upon that, which we all have experienced, plus uh, com blending that, uh, which we know, with, with current thinking about uh, the necessity, we believe, to be culturally responsive. Yeah, absolutely. And I can so, um, wow. Uh, uh, when you're talking about impatience, with with the health disparities because we've been talking about it for so darn long right we're talking about it because we're not addressing it sometimes we're not even looking at the data right um i've been doing a lot of uh uh work in communities lately um and and and, and beginning to have them look at data by broken down by race and ethnicity and they've never done that before right so they they might say oh well you know our, our high school graduation is 95 percent aren't we awesome 
But then if you look, dig into the data and see, well, not everybody's graduating on time. Not everybody's doing well. It kind of opens it up. So, uh, but let's dig into the, the framework. So what is impact? What are those letters stand for? Let's start there and then we'll get into how to use that. Absolutely. I'll start us off and I'll preface this by saying that, or adding to what Norma shared earlier about the importance of also having what we came together collectively to recognize as our, even though it might be different in terms of how we show up in our culture, but so many similarities in so many ways. And that is also honored and reflected in this acronym. Um, and more importantly for me, it was also a reflection of my identity in a way, because I'm a Ghanaian American, as um, Norma mentioned, in terms of how we, we first met and my, my proud Ghanaian culture being represented and how I showed up that day when we met at the conference. Um, but also my identity in this world, walking in black skin in the country with so much anti-blackness as part of our heritage and culture. So in order for, for the framework to really, we, when we're, we, Norma and I were talking about how this would be applied, it was so evident for us that that has to be embedded, right? My piece around how I show up in the world in my, in my fullness of my blackness, how Norma represents herself, herself as a Mexican American woman, right? All of those pieces, are embedded in this. So when we talk about, so the I for the I in impact stands for inclusive. So at the heart of that word is inclusivity to the most minute detail of every intersectional facet of how every human shows up in the world. And that is very true. So how we really want this to be implemented. So the I is for inclusive and inclusivity defined very um, broadly in terms of how people show up in their interse intersectional facets. Manomit is an M. And this one took a little bit of dictionary work <laughs> uh, because as you can tell, when we, we started with the word impact, we knew it was gonna be acronyms for some words. So we needed to play around with some words. We knew things around inclusivity. We wanted to be accessible. All of those pieces were reflected. But when it came to some of the letters, we need to dig into the dictionary a little bit more. And we knew that the concept of liberation, hey buddy, and the and the dog starts barking on cue. Yes, <laughs> the dog wants to be liberated. That's <laughs> funny. <laughs> Let it's me know the world we live in today. Go ahead, Sharon. Oh, I'm, I'm just glad it wasn't my toddler that just came here. Then he would definitely be part of the conversation. Anyway, okay. Rewind. The M in impact stands for manomit. Now that means liberation. So there is this quote, and apologies for not remembering the name. If I remember it, I'll send it to you in case you have notes to send out to uh, your listeners. It's by an Aboriginal elder. And it says, if your liberation is tied to mine, then you and I, and I paraphrase, of course, if your liberation is tied to mine, then you and I can speak. But if you're coming here to tell me what to do or think I have a problem you're coming to solve, then please park yourself outside. Again, I paraphrase. But it was very important to really recognize that richness because when we talk about working with communities, 
communities have been in existence for years. So we're not in our own ways of how we think academically going to go into community and think we're the savior. So it was very important for us to have that reflected. So manumit and impact is liberation. So how are we allowing for the beauty, for the power, for all the richness that exists in a community to show up in the work and not us going to say that we've come with all that we know in the whole world. And then finally, not finally, but the, the P, um, because I'm gonna pass it on to Norma to continue, is practice-based. This is important because it's a tool that evaluators need to use, evaluators and researchers actually. So if we're not thinking practically, if we're not thinking about how can evaluators take this tool, think about how they're framing their work very much early from the mindset point of what are we going to do? how they're engaging with their communities, how the process actually works and how messy it is, that is definitely an important consideration. So the P in impact is the practice base and how practical this tool is. Norma, I hand it over to you to tell us about the rest. Thank you, Sharon. So we have, as part of the impact acronym of the framework, um, all A, C, and T, and the A, um, is the first letter in accessible or accessibility. And given that we use information, collect information, somehow try to have um, uh, opportunities to make sense of that information, AKA data, whether that's in numbers or in narrative form, um, it's one thing to make it, make the results or, or the, the uh, interpretation of that information accessible to um, the usual ways of, of learning and teaching that we may be accustomed to. Um, short of actually spending years and years in those kinds of settings where we do a lot of reading, um, the question becomes how do we make that information um, reachable, sensible to people <clears throat> relative to the daily lives, interests, um, that, that experiences that they are going through, um, and also in formats, uh, which may not be the narrative, which may not be the numerical, um, so that they, it, the people who, who, from whom this information has been collected can then apply what the evaluation work um, has, has been, that experience in their lives. And so that's what the accessibility is. We, you know, we hear about um, these days as well about language justice and um, having having um, different kinds of language expressions in the work that that's put out there out in communities. That's one aspect of it, certainly, um, because of the multiple languages that are in this this country. The other is about. <clears throat> whether those, even, even having that translated language, whether the interpretation of that has any meaning to the people, uh, again, from which the information is derived. So that's what accessibility is about. Uh, the C is that we remain community focused. And in that, we have to ask ourselves what community means. It's very easy to go the route of talking about community focus, but then, you know, whose community are we talking about and who makes up the community? I can think of my own town and how some people talk about being representatives of community and come to find out that really that's made up of different neighborhoods that we have in, in, in town and not everyone speaks to each other. Many of the urban areas in our 
country have been divided by um, interstates, for example. And we know that even the mere uh, presence of some large structure in a, an area in which geographic area in which we live can separate people and, and, and makes uh, a difference in how people use services, for example. So um, community focus is about asking the question, who are we really talking about? And also for the evaluation work is that we understand the necessity to maintain a rigor about it. We're not discarding the, the, the scientific approach, if you will, that we have been taught to. There's something to be said about, about that being of, of importance. But at the same time, we also recognize that we have to somehow blend that systematic approach that we use in evaluative work uh, with the context that communities bring. And that context, context is about what is relevant to the very people for whom um, the evaluation has been commissioned, where even the next layer about that is who determines how the data collected will be used. The last letter in, in impact is the letter T, as in timely. And we who are with the privilege of, of being observers and designers of, of evaluation um, can think about the urgency of preparing um, a report, if you will, a collection, a summary of, of, of information that's been collected in various ways and uh, presenting it to someone who's going to use it and make some sort of decision about that based on that information. However, it doesn't stop there. It ought not to stop there is what we believe. We also have to recognize that all along the process of evaluation, all along the, the, the time that we spend working within a community, the community's priorities may not be at the same pace as the work that we're doing. And often we're guided by deadlines, right? We, we, we have to submit something by a certain time. And yet we may not be at that point of relationship building within a community that has even permitted us to work within and or further than that, obtain requests, solicit information from the people uh, for whom a program is being evaluated. Um, so timeliness is about recognizing how the pace and the readiness of a community to have someone from outside uh, come and work with them aligns or doesn't uh, with the, the timeline that um, is, is lingering over us to get this work done. At the same time, earlier we talked about our impatience as evaluators who recognize that there are, you know, lots, there's lots of work to be done yet to, to, to have an equitable society. And so that also lingers in us. And we probably are uh, surrounded by that tension of how do we accommodate. But the very fact that we are aware that we also experience that tension is tell is is really revealing and is used is used in this work i think it can be used and that's what we we support and and so timeliness or being timely is not only about you know, recognizing the different paces of communities and those who commission evaluations but also our own pace our own willingness to be patient or impatient when we know that the work that we do 
the, the most precious parts of it is about the relational aspects of working within a community. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where the, uh, that's where the treasure is. That's the importance. That's the, the um, great privilege and blessing that we have to be in community. So how do you see using this framework? Because, you know, communities don't really care about our framework necessarily, right? Um, they don't care about our fancy language. How do you, how do you see uh, the framework being helpful to work in communities? What are some of the benefits of, of using the framework? Thank you. If I may, I, I see Sharon nodding, and I think uh, Sharon, please, please add to this because I know you and I have spoken about wanting to um, to increase this this the sense of value um, among and those of us who who are in in positions where we are working in communities with communities for communities in service to them that. Um, we, I think current, current language is to elevate, right? That we elevate the value of the qualitative aspects of our work, the narratives, the stories, the experiences, and yes, the lived experiences of the, the practitioners, all the people who are involved in communities, but as well, the community itself. I'll, I'll, I'll say something, and this is a, a quote, not from anyone who was published ever, but from my own family, and I think probably this crosses um, over to other families in that it's it, education is, is not about the academic degrees, but how you relate to people. It's that sense, that expression of, of mutual respect and mutual validity and mutual acknowledgement. And so even talking about that in, Elevating that, giving value to that, is what I think impact is about, or our framework, if you will, is about. And to the extent that we are part of, yes, still the way, the way new information is disseminated, uh, the conferences, the academic venues, the publications, etc. To the extent that that extends and gets infused. Um, among those that have come before us and who have uh, a platform that gives them the credibility to say, hey, yes, it's time that we take a look at all of this um, and try novel ways, or maybe not so novel ways, really, they're traditional ways. It's like, hey, relating to each other, how, how novel is that? <laughs> you know, it's quite basic, but I think we have to be reminded that, you know, sometimes basic works. Yeah, Sharon, anything to add there? Absolutely. Um, the, before I even talk about adding more to that, because normally the grant works so well uh, to help me think about this too, is the recognition that this is really not the, the first time other scholars have thought about this, right? How to really honor and center community in the work. There's been many ancestors who have been doing this and, and helping us and helping us really think about what that whole concept of culturally responsive and equitable evaluation or research, what does that really mean? There's, there's a lot of um, you know, really amazing work that has happened to ground us. What we are trying to do is to say that, how can we take what we've learned from those ancestors and take it to a point where we have a tool that forces us 
to have almost like a critical reflection of our work before we even step out. So yes, communities, like you said, they don't care about a framework. So it, it is upon us to figure out how we are going to engage with the community before we even step up to them. So that is what I think our um, framework allows us to do, number one. And number two, I'll pick up on what Norma said about the, the beauty of building trust and relationships, right? And I think sometimes we forget how critical that is. And more importantly, how critical to have that as part of how we want to go operate and work in the first place. So we don't have to get into a situation where maybe we have 10 things on our agenda and our blood is burning hot because we can't get through all of that because we go to a community setting and they have more pressing matters that they want to talk about. So this tool allows for us to be able to have that toolkit and say that, yes, if I'm going to honor the community, then I better make room for that to happen. So I should be okay in my mindset, in my work, that when I step into that community and I can get through all these 10 things on my agenda, I should be okay with that because I am stepping out to go honor that community. And I think that's really some of the essences that we want folks to, to get out of this framework. And finally, we know at the end of the day, decisions who will be made outside of this framework. What we want to do is not really make or really say this framework is gonna give you the magic pill for those decisions. It's helping you to know the confines of how you can make those decisions. And at the same time, really truthfully honor community as however you design it in your, or define it in your work and how you're thinking about that in your work. Awesome. So. Um... Norma, one of the things that I know you had mentioned earlier when we talked about the framework was uh, the possible limitations of it, that it's that it certainly helps uh, center communities. It helps thinks it helps us think through our interventions, our evaluations, our reporting, all of those kinds of things. But do you want to talk about the limitations as you see them? Thank you. Um, a little bit of thought about that is, you know. I've recently come across these having me think about the distinction between problem solving and decision making. And I think in that interest that we spoke about earlier in the podcast about wanting to do something about shifting conditions to the better for all communities um, is, is this desire to um, to, to create change very rapidly. And um, we know that some people are you know, more in favor of individual and societal change and others are not. And so to give us um, an opportunity to pause and, and yes, reflect on how individually as practitioners, we approach a situation. Do we approach it from that you know, the problem aspect as we often are trained, you know, identify the problem, do something with it, come up with a solution or the an alternative, which also um, is in some circles, you know, asset building, start from where people are, that kind of approach. Uh, even with that, it's like um, we have to, I believe also continually think about what is going on uh, in me personally and professionally that can have me um, be in any one of the, these, these areas of uh, trying to 
augment or, or, or foster inclusivity and, and, and a practice-oriented approach and, and timeliness and all that that we talked about with impact. Um, and so there will be limitations because we will be stumped at some times. Sometimes we will be facing experiences that are new to us. Uh, we will be within circles of, of people that have, of course, their own approach to things. And we haven't yet figured it all out. <laughs> you know? um, yes, we're systems oriented because we are at least aware that there are um, different aspects that intersect in, in everyone's life that influences how they go about it and what decisions they end up making, whether that's related to disease prevention, health promotion, or what have you. Um, and that happens with us too. If when we are in a role that puts us front and center of wanting to be helpful to others, we also encounter new experiences, sometimes on the spot, and, and we do not have a resolution to tensions and conflicts and differences, you know, the kind of stuff that sometimes keeps us up at night, <laughs> right? Or maybe often keeps us up at night. So there are limitations to any framework. Um, and, and there's also the opportunity to examine why do we even consider them to be limitations and then proceed and go to another complementary or not so complementary approach and find what works. Because even as I am saying this now, um, I, I am realizing that uh, that also, that approach of trying to bring in different tools, if you will, is also a reflection, a mirroring of the circumstances that we find ourselves in the work that we do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can, I can really relate to, to what you're saying there. And, you know, I, I say all the time, um, because primarily my practice is evaluation and community coalitions and all that kind of thing. And I always say, um, you know, evaluation information is not good or bad. It just is, it's all learning, right? It, uh, so we're always learning. There will always be limitations. And as long as we have a humility about that, and we bring that and we walk with communities, right? We're truly walking with them, not ahead of them, not, not, you know, not, not trailing them, right? Walking aside. I think it's going to all be okay. So we started out talking about personal, getting to know you a little bit. And we talked about kind of your, your collaborative thinking, your collaborative evaluation, community thinking, I have a question for each one of you, and I think I'm going to go back to Sharon first. So uh, Sharon, I knew you were an author. I did not know until uh, the last week or two that you're actually a poet. Uh, friend, I have been known to write a poem or two of my own. So tell us about your creative side and how that enriches your work. Absolutely. So there are two things I want to say about that. And thank you. <laughs> yes, there, there's on the onion here. Just keep peeling and you do <laughs> every day. <laughs> but it goes to the point of the learning, right? And I think the best learning is what we discover about our own selves. 
Um, and I find it so fascinating when, when we're able to both privilege and honor to be able to, to do that or know that about ourselves. So the two things I'll say about that is number one, I really consider my creative outlet, I call it my venting outlet for the most part. Um, as Norma said earlier, that one of the, our shared um, sort of bond is around the impatience, around the whole systemic issues that it's almost like a mill just, just keeps repeating and all you hear is disparities. Yes, we know that, so what? And we really need to start thinking about this, so what? So when I find myself just being in the work so long that I'm all in my head and I really need to vent out those frustrations because I'm a human, um, and more importantly, my identity makes me a part of the marginalized groups that are part of those disparities. I need a way to let all of that out. And so my creativity allows me to do that. Um, and then secondly, I just love for the whole concept of how, I hate silos. So I, I, I hate for the definition of who people are, what they're capable of, to be very fluid and determinant and very deterministic on the actual person. So being able to bring all these pieces of myself, especially to a space of science, social science in this case, where it's all sometimes a very narrow focus. Actually, it's 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 quite, um what's the word I'm looking for? It's quite refreshing um, because it forces me to really challenge some, some of those dominant narratives that I hear and like, well, yeah, maybe we just need to focus on the experiences that people bring, not whatever we have defined as what people are supposed to be. So those are my two, my two points about that, about how I'm showing up and bringing that creativity piece in my work. That's great. And I, I um, tell us the name of your book. I can like see it in my head, but I don't want to get it yeah. wrong. Absolutely. So actually, before I even say that, so I'm a mom of three. So this is all inspirational around that. Um, it's called Coley and Boss for the Dog. So that's a children's book. Um, and then I've written several poems, but the recent one is called Identity and it's published in Health Affairs if folks want to go read it. That's awesome. And if you um, share those links, I'll be happy to share them in the show notes. And I have got to buy that for my grandkids. Yes. And I'll find it because you're local. <laughs> oh, yay. Awesome. And Norma, the last time um, you and I saw each other, I think we were on a panel together, maybe at AEA. I don't know. We've been on several panels together, I think. Maybe. I don't know. There's been so many. Last time I saw you, though, you were about to run for city council. Uh, rumor has it that you actually won. So I'm very curious about how that's going and what you've learned um, and maybe how that kind of changed your, I don't know, perspective as a professional. I don't know. What what can you tell us about your experience? Maybe I'll just leave it there. And you, you share to the level that you're comfortable sharing because uh, running for city or local government or even statewide government um, uh, or maybe even national is, it's definitely a way of giving back to communities. So how's that going for you? It, it absolutely is a way of giving back. And my, um, motivation to run was based on an interest in being of service to a community that I adopted. You know, I started talking about having grown up and reared in Los Angeles, Southern California, then moving to Northern California, ending up in this area where it was, it still maintains a small town character. And I thought, Hey, this is something um, that I can possibly um, uh, be be part of in a different way. Um, and so an opportunity came up to run for office. And yes, yeah, I, I ended up with the most votes that year, which also gave me an opportunity to be of service as mayor for a year. In our town, we, we rotate. So how is it's 
it's going. Um, I'm in my fourth year of a first term and truly it's giving me pause to consider whether I want to remain in that atmosphere or not. Um, in, in community work, you know, I'm going to take it back to, you know, my, my roots, my origin, my real, the real work that, that, that I love. And that is that we, we talk about uh, addressing uh, the different stakeholders, right? The people in, in different sectors. And here I am as not unlike what I've been, how I've been in, in other times in my life. And that is, um, you know, one foot in one place, one foot in another. Um, sort of having a sense about how systems work from one perspective, Nonprofit working with nonprofits, working in the public sector, and and now in in this governance role, and it's been a both fascinating and trying. Mm. And the trying aspect is that intellectual challenge of 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 having, you know, in my case, five different people, five different backgrounds, trying to work together, making decisions for the good of of all. Well, at the same time, that isn't always manifested. Mm. And that's the charge that uh, that's that's what makes it hard for me to understand and appreciate this this uh, um, environment of things political. Unfortunately, I believe is that those tensions and how they manifest not in very friendly ways always is what gives politics a bad name initially historical politics is about the people, it's about being <laughs> of service to community. But we don't see that necessarily depending on our orientations, right? Uh, whether that really manifests uh, when, when policy decisions are made. So now mm -hmm. I get to be this policymaker, right? And so I really get tested about whether what I believe um, can influence others to concur with some decision that is of for the for the good of of the majority of people in in my town um it's been interesting been interesting very much a learning experience and um i have to remind myself on a regular basis that there are other other roots that hold me to be true to what I believe in, what I grew up to be, reasons to continue in the work, whatever track I'm on, and that uh, will have me sleep well at night, you know? And by mm -hmm. that, I mean, whatever decisions I make that 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 uh, I can be okay with them right. because I have not contributed to either the negativity or the harm that can be done. Mm -hmm. when when someone leans too much and i see this um on having a platform that can be um used in a way that is self-aggrandizing and um and 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 does not really um in my opinion uh show up as um, in service, really mm -hmm. true service to to 
to a community that, you know, requires mm-hmm. us to go beyond ego, which is a whole other conversation. Right. So yeah. that's what I can tell you about my experience. Very, been very interesting, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Interesting, uh, I, fascinating, challenging, exhausting, rewarding, <laughs> all of, sounds like all of those things. Yeah. But um, I, I appreciate the fact that you're trying to live in that, uh, live with integrity. We need a little more of that. We need a little more of that in our servant leaders. We we need servant leaders. So thank you for serving. Thank you. Well, ladies, I so appreciate you coming on the show today. And I have to ask you the question I ask everybody, and I don't know who wants to go first, but when you look to the future, what community possibilities do you see? Omar, you want to start us off? I can I just say I love how respectful you are of each other. You're always like, would you like to go? Would you like to go? I love that. Thank you. Part of our magic. <laughs> well, I see the possibility of of people uh, working with each other that have grown up and reared in different. Um, conditions, socioeconomic, cultural, uh, working together as long as they give themselves the time to meet, to talk, um, and to recognize that there's something to be learned from each other. I think that I'm hopeful that, that we see more of that. Okay. Sharon? Yes. Um... I'm so grateful for that question. And what comes up for me is, so I'm a wife. I am married to a Black man as a Black woman myself. And like most Black women in this country, there's always this tension around Black malehood and how it is in this country. Um, I also have two boys. I have three kids. One of them is a girl. I also have two boys. And, you know, what that future looks like for them. Um, And more importantly, also being the fact that I moved here, we're foreign born folks that moved here from a different country and making that choice to move here um, and the tension that comes around that, right? To to determining whether with all the day-to-day living that we face in this country based on our skin color and the choice of moving here and living here versus where we were originally born. It's an everyday story. So the possibilities really I see is where we can have a world where the whole status quo that is really rooted in whiteness in this country, and frankly, anti-Blackness, if I'm going to be be truthful, mm-hmm. have that uprooted to where we can all embrace one collective anti-racist agenda, we're able to create structures that are more than a camouflage of data. What do I mean by that? It's not just having this representation that, for example, the the quick example that comes to mind is more diversity hires, right? How many Mm -hmm. Black people in the organization? No, it's rather a symphony, I'm calling a symphony of lived experiences that is informing how we're building each structure one at a time. So that's what I like to see. Well, again, I want to thank you so uh, much for joining me. You two, you may not know, but you two are my favorite people. So thank you for being here. So how can people get in touch with you? Yes, I am all over social media with my book, (laughs) Holy Bosco, (laughs) K-O-L-I-B-O-S-C-O. So find me. 
um, and I'll send those links to you as well so folks can get in touch. And I'll love to connect with other amazing community leaders. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Norma? Well, thank you, Anne, and thank you, Sharon. And for anyone who may wish to reach me, reach me at Norma, N-O-R-M-A, at evaluationfocused, with an E-D at the end, dot com. All right. Well, Norma, Sharon, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank Have you. a great day. Thank you. All right. Bye, Anne. Bye, Norma. So long. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of Community Possibilities. As always, please remember to share this episode with someone who needs to hear it. If you could like and maybe even write a review wherever you listen, that would be super helpful. I also want to invite you to think about whether or not you know for sure whether you're really making a difference in your community. And if you're not, or if you're struggling, I have a free guide that might help you. You can go on over to communityevaluationsolutions.com forward slash free dash guide for your copy of Powerful Evidence, Harnessing Your Results for Social Change. My free guide is going to help you develop a clear path to success, build confidence that you've selected the right strategy, and foster collaboration with your team. This guide is perfect for community coalitions and collaboratives, nonprofits, foundations, and state and federally funded programs, really anyone who's trying to do community change work. So again, go on over to communityevaluationsolutions.com forward slash free dash guide and download my free guide.